This show is sponsored by FIS. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. It might be Black History Month, but we're talking about the future of Black banking on Breaking Banks this month. In the first half, we talk about relationships making the seemingly impossible become a reality. Kenya McKnight Ahad leads the Black Women's Wealth Alliance, which powers entrepreneurs to build intergenerational wealth. We're joined by her commercial banker, Mary Stoic of Sunrise Banks, who helped her buy a building that now serves as an incubator for Black female entrepreneurs. In the second half, Damon Jenkins, market president for First Independence Bank, one of the few Black-owned banks in the country, and Brian Toff, chief revenue officer at Sunrise Banks, and I talk about creating cultures that promote inclusivity. Everything from how we dress to how we talk is on the table. The conclusion? The banker's skin color doesn't fix the problem. This month on Breaking Banks, the future of Black finance. We're spending most of our time talking about the future of financial services as it relates to to the Black community in this country. I'm very excited to talk about what's going on with the Black Women's Wealth Alliance, which is a bit of a tongue twister, Kenny. I'm not going to lie. That keeps you know, tripping me up every time I have to say that. Can you give us the history? How did the Black Women's Wealth Alliance come about and what are the problems you're setting out to solve? You know, it comes from, um, you know, this really this long history of uh, at least my experience with women struggling. Uh, to raise their children, you know, single moms, my mom being one, and just not having enough, uh, really, in its in its essence, and uh, and in my work uh, in economic development and seeing challenges that I just didn't think that our community would be able to champion without Black women um, because of our power composition, the role we play in community. So we've got to. In my mind, we've had to really figure out how to support Black women being well in order to extend it to the broader community. So um, I got a group of people together, uh, colleagues, community members, friends, family, to talk about finance, something I've never talked about, you know, growing up. And uh, 20 of us, and we gathered at a McDonald's on West Broadway on the north side where uh, we all lived. And we started talking about it and figuring out, like, what do we need to do for ourselves? Because clearly there was not a pathway at that time uh, to really guarantee that we have, you know, economic success. So that's where it started and how. So for these women you gathered, I, I'm going to guess it was a promise of more than McNuggets that got them there. I'm curious what that first sell to them you really was, or was it as open-ended as we got to pull ourselves up collectively by the bootstraps? Yeah, it was it was really just like me. I had went to Oakland and uh, did all this research when I was at PolicyLink and learned a lot of information about um, black money that I just didn't know before in the history. And I just started sharing it. And I was like, is this real? It was more like me doing a survey, um, like asking questions. And uh, although Tim Baylor, the owner of that McDonald's on Broadway, did give us coffee and uh, <laughs> hash browns. So, you know, we, we met there and he loved it. Um, but it was really more so like, just like, what do we, I think people trusted me. That was one, uh, because of my work and who I had been to them the whole time. And, and they knew that, you know, I'd work hard to figure something out with them. So that was, I think the, the, the thing that brought it together, but certainly it was, um, you know, just conversation like, Hey, you know, uh, you know, who feels confident in their financial skills? Only one person said, you know, they did. Who owns a house? Only one person did. You know, who makes over 40,000? Only two people did, three people did. And so it was just, you know, and really just talking to them about like, you know, really like how 
how do we really like make more money? Most of us were business owners. Um, and really to talk about like how we keep trying to make things meet that don't, you know, and like, what do we need to do? So we brainstormed and the fact that they had ideas and we can talk and share, uh, I think was a thing too. So, and it was us because we're used to being pulled into conversations, not really having our own. So talk to me about black money and some of the things you learned in your research. Well, I learned that uh, nearly 60% of the black dollar was controlled by African-American women, which I didn't know. Um, I learned that we have this one point at the time, uh, $3 trillion buying power that I didn't know because the narrative in our community is that we're poor, there's poverty, right? You don't think about having any sort of an influencer power. Um, and I learned you know, a lot of some of the challenges that the poverty or the struggle financially was concentrated in black women and children. Not that men don't struggle, but it's just the children are normally with their with their mothers, you know, when there's a separation. And so um, and I, I learned about, uh, you know, the beauty industry, the kind of money that black women spend there. I learned about our heavy consumerism and and how we are not retaining not even 30% of uh, the money that we circulate. And so those were just some of the things that really stood out to me and how black women were leading new business startups across the country. I had been at that time for more than 15 years, but not success, right? Um, you know, in the broader sense. And so it was a lot of contradicting facts to me, like on one end there's this and on the other end there's that. So it was really fascinating though. So fast forward to today, what does the BWWA do today in terms of solving some of these issues? Yeah, we've done a lot of amazing things over time, but we land on four things is uh, we have a wealth education program, one that, you know, teaches black women about the concept, tools and strategies of wealth. We partner with Thriving Financial to do that. Um, and then because of the entrepreneurship, we provide some business support services and get folks connected to the broader ecosystem, of course. Um, and then we have a small grant program where we invest small capacity grants into business owners, uh, students for tuition, um, and then, you know, career professionals for like trainings and transportation. And then now we own a building, uh, thanks to our partnership with Sunrise. Um, we own a commercial building in North Minneapolis that we um, use as an incubator space for Black women entrepreneurs to uh, grow their businesses. Perfect segue, Mary. Talk to me about how did Sunrise get involved here and what was the mandate and also some of the challenges? Because I think underwriting something like this, you know, isn't right down the center of the fairway of your typical community bank. Yeah, happy to chime in. Actually, Kenya's been a customer of Sunrise since before I came. She opened all of her initial accounts with Sunrise for BWWA in, I want to say, fall of 2017. Um, and so you, you've you had a longer relationship with Sunrise than I have, actually. But I've been here almost just over five years. Um, and so, yeah, I think the relationship started with the, the way most of us start a relationship with a bank in any bank, right? We open accounts and we start to kind of establish that trust. And you said something earlier, Kenya, about people uh, wanting to have that conversation with you early on about starting something like BWWA because they trusted you. And that's exactly what banking is all about. It's about whether or not we have earned the trust or we can earn the trust over time of the people who bank with us. Um, and Sunrise is kind of a unique bank, right? Where we have a social mission attached to what we do. We're about, you know, access to financial wellness, empowering that for everybody in our community and making sure that people have access to the mainstream banking system through a variety of ways. But in the spring of 2021, Kenya and I were connected. I don't even remember how, but it, you had this opportunity to buy this building in North Minneapolis. And I've been doing commercial lending for uh, now it's 17 years. So at the time, it was probably about 15 years. And I, I, as a person, just feel so strongly in the power of what we do in helping make dreams reality. So when somebody comes and tells me, I have this idea, I have this dream, I really want to do this, my immediate gut reaction is, you're a person of limitless worth and I want to help make that happen. <laughs> There's no reason I shouldn't believe that you could make that dream happen. Now, I have 
specific parameters or limitations I have to work within as a banker. But my in- initial immediate gut reaction is, awesome, let's figure out a way we can make this work. Let's figure out what what we can do to make that happen. Um, so yeah, we helped you buy a building. And it was, I mean, it wasn't without hiccups because that's just how oh, yeah. <laughs> purchasing real estate goes <laughs> and owning real estate goes. And you know that, but um, but it's the best part of banking as a banker, I should say, working in this industry is when we can actually get to that closing table. I have that closing kind of burned into my memory, actually, because it was such a powerful moment. Um, But you asked about hiccups too, Jason, I think, or um, challenges. Um, You know, really, it, it wasn't anything terribly unusual that we ran into, but it's kind of a lot of things that come along the way with purchasing real estate in general, this is my perception, by the way, it'll be really interesting to hear Kenya's perception because she was much more directly involved with the seller and with other, and and with the bank, right? Factors around that. Um, But there's always uh, sort of regulatory and restrictive limits around how much you can lend and what does the cash flow look like? And what's the long-term plan for the property? Because um, I'm sure Kenya will want to share about this. There's a huge vision behind this property that we're not quite there at yet. We're, we're about to, she's about to launch that vision and that next stage of redevelopment for this amazing building. So, you know, really part of it was, can we help you acquire this site so you have control over it to actually make the bigger picture dream happen? And Sunrise is very innovative as a bank and being willing to do that to say, look, the first goal is to get you control of this site, get you ownership of this site. So now you can think about what else are you going to do with it? How are you going to turn it into a powerful asset for the community, which is the goal and the vision? And how can Sunrise be a part of that next stage? And that's our goal as well. How can we help make that possible for Kenya and for her community? Kenya, I'm curious, one of the, you don't strike me as someone who's easily intimidated, but one of the challenges we often hear when it comes to you know, banking and underserved communities and black in per- communities in particular is a level of intimidation of approaching when it comes to a loan deposit accounts being somewhat easier to do, but almost this like fear you're not going to clear the bar. Was what was the borrowing process like from your perspective? As Mary said, like was it a challenge to even get to the to the door and to develop a business plan, or did it go relatively smoothly? And how was it to work with the bank? You know, for me, it was a question, <laughs> and I went to Terry. Uh, yeah, Sunrise was like, "Hey, I want to buy this building. This is why is what I like to do. How do I make this happen?" And she was like, well, it needs to be X, this, that, this, this, that. And I was like, all right, let's figure that out. I didn't know what that meant, but I was like, I'll figure it out. Um, and uh, funny, because I met Marietta. Um, oh, uh, yeah. Claire, the uh, <laughs> former uh, CEO of Sunrise uh, was being honored. And uh, Mary's daughter comes up to me. You know, she liked my dress. I was receiving an award as a top woman in finance. And um and then here's this pregnant lady, pregnant redhead lady comes up running like, I'm so sorry, because her daughter's just talking to me. And I'm like, oh, it's totally fine. I'm an auntie. And <laughs> um, fast forward a year later, I'm I'm getting ready to buy this building, which, by the way, I was a tenant at the building uh, for four years before I purchased it. Um, and uh, D'Angelo of Nail Partners is who connected us. She's like, you need to talk to Mary at Sunrise. And when I get on the Zoom, I'm like... There's that lady. <laughs> no longer so pregnant, was, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was like how we connected and Mary and I, but I talked to Terry before that. And I just, you know, I depended on the bank to be very clear with me, honestly, uh, about what does it really take to do something like this? And I just knew that my job was to bring myself to the bar as much as possible. So I didn't, you know, um, I had credit challenges. Oh, my gosh. Um, when I actually paid attention to my credit, it was like 500 and something. I was like, oh, my gosh. So I had to work really hard. I had to pay off student loan debt. Um, the challenge for me was that now, thankfully, I had some resources at the time at that level that I could pay $60,000 of student loan debt off, right? But that's not really how that, you know, works in our community, right? Like who has, you know, just money laying around. Um, and even the amount of money that it took to pay for all the things, uh, you know, on the closing cost and the investigation of the property, I had a really smart attorney. Uh, that was my saving grace really through it. She walked me through it and she's just as fierce as me, uh, Juliana. 
And and so uh, that was, uh, and you know, and I think Mary, honestly, and Juliana were, you know, just really a big grace for me. Uh, they were very warm, uh, very straightforward. Whenever a challenge came or was about to, I knew about it. So I was provided with knowledge, you know, to educate myself, but also the opportunity to correct or to bring myself to the bar. I wasn't just told no, right? You know, I was told right. like, here's the process, here's how it works. And if you want that, still can't guarantee it, but here's where you got to at least be, you know, bring yourself to. And that was priceless. And then that gave me a choice. It gave me the um, opportunity, right, to succeed or fail. And that was an important piece to this whole journey, um, you know, of of purchasing it. So I never one at once felt that I couldn't do it. Um, I just wasn't sure when and how it would happen. What you said is such an important mantra for, I think, really strong banks that are really focused and invested in their communities. And Sunrise obviously really subscribes to this. One of the things we talk about in our kind of commercial lending circles at Sunrise is the answer should never be no. If it is no, it should be more not this way. Wait, so here's the additional steps or here's an additional pathway or additional part of the process we need to go through in order to get you there. But for it to ever be just straight up no is frankly, in my opinion, a disservice to the people that we're working with. There's always a pathway. We need to be honest and direct and open so that we can empower you, like you said, to make choices, to know what your choices are, to know what pathways you could pursue. And you might choose not to go down that path or not go that direction in buying that building or starting that business or buying that car. But it's not our job to say yes or no. It's our job to say, not that way, or we can do it this way, or here's another path that might work, or here's another resource that can help support you and make that happen. Yeah, That's what real equity looks like to me. Yeah, it was priceless. Penny, what advice would you give for entrepreneurs when it comes to working with their banks? And specifically, can you tailor it since you work with so many Black women entrepreneurs, what advice would you give them? Let's start with the bank relationship and expand to more broadly. You know, build a relationship. You know, most businesses just are transactional with the bank, right? You know, you make deposits, you know, um, you know, withdrawals, and um, that's the just of the relationship, you know, until a banker or somebody pisses you off, you're yelling on the phone or something. I don't know, but... <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think like um, go further, build a relationship, ask questions, seek the information. I mean, you know, just seek the information you need, you know, ask people, you know, push them to be honest about what it really takes, you know, for the things you're interested in, right? And then how can they work with you to bring yourself to that point, right? And you never know what's possible. And sometimes it's not you bringing yourself there. It's also pushing the bank to really think about how to best serve that customer. But it starts with conversation, right? And a relationship that you have to build over time. And I'm still building with Sunrise. I'm not super set in that, but I think my relationship, Mary with Terry, um, I've met with David once and um, and, you know, we're doing all kind of fantastic things. We just had the video released. Um, I presented at your annual, you know, I mean, I think just the relationship is important and that's important whether you get money or not. I mean, the best people to tell you about how to access those opportunities with the bank is the bank themselves. Right. So those relationships, I would just say, once again, is essential to build. Yeah. We often talk about the importance and the role of technology. And one of the important parts about technology is it can remove the fear of asking questions. And you know, no one likes to you know, feel like they don't know something, especially if it's, they think everyone else knows it and they're the only ones who don't. Where did technology fit into this? Because I know Sunrise has also made significant investments in this. Let's start with you, Mary, but then also, Kenya, I'd love to hear how you leveraged other resources technologically to meld this together. Hmm, that's a really good question, actually. I mean, technology has been part of banking since I started in it. It's just constantly integrated, right? Um, even something as simple as how we manage the construction process. So Kenya made some improvements to the building after we closed on the financing. And we have this fantastic platform we use that um, 
allows for an elect- fully electronic interfacing, right, of submitting draw requests and the backup documentation and then the bank reviewing it and people approving it and it gets sent to title and, or, you know, leveraging that kind of technology so there's a centralized hub for all of that process and documentation, for example. Um, that I mean, that's specifically related to the loan itself. Um, but I think, I mean, be more curious to hear what Kenya's perception is of like technology and how you've utilized it in owning the building or, you know, through this whole process. Yeah. Did that make it easier or harder for you? In the purchasing process? Yeah. Um, it was easier because I got to submit you know, uh, like like the uh, the initial document and writing up the vision. You know, I yeah, I didn't have to do this manual thing. So, one, it made the um, uh, documentation process and even submitting and getting all these things filled out early, easy early on easier. One, and then two, um, yeah, being able to use the online system. Although I'm not as good with it with the building bank account as I am with my. <laughs> BWWA, yeah. Yeah, so I'm like yeah. just you know, being able to get all that figured out. I'm just super busy chick. Um, the other part is that I think one of the most important pieces is that it's allowed for me to have more access to Mary. Like we have these regular meetings, right? And that isn't always doable, like to drive here, drive there. So the convenience of us being able to connect um, through technology has been really important throughout because we've stayed connected uh, post uh, purchase. So it isn't like this transactional. We've actually talked at least once or twice a month at, since that and technology yeah. just connected in that way. Uh, Sunrise has launched a, you know, a video highlighting BWWA store. So using their platform, right? Their platform has been, I think, very helpful. A lot of people like the video. So um Thank you all for that. It's just giving me more access and insights to the bank and them to us. So it's it's both ways. Yeah. So before we run out of time, talk to us about the future of this grand vision, both of the space and what you look to accomplish with the Black Women's Wealth Alliance. Yeah, so the building, um, is now called Zara, and it's a holistic wellness complex. Um, so we have, um, you know, 12 women there now who are providing massage therapy, acupuncture, uh, birth work, you know, a lot of different holistic modalities, which is great. The goal of it is to expand our uh, existing 15 suites into about 30 uh, to turn our existing restaurant space there into a food hall. Um, and to create event space where education and workshops and, you know, things can happen there. But ultimately to turn it into a public asset that, um, you know, the community is proud of, the community can use, and an asset that provides, you know, um, wellness opportunities for the community through its physical design, but also through the space. And ultimately that it's an incubator that will grow entrepreneurs through generations. Um, by being an affordable space that is also beautiful, um, healing, um, and, you know, resourceful for the community. So that's the broader vision of Zara. And for the Black Women's Wealth Alliance is to grow our operations into a national institution as a resource for Black women to grow prosperity um, through the work that we currently do. So we'd like to build Zara's, of course, across the country. But we're starting with North Minneapolis, uh, where things are the hardest, and that's the heart of the Black community in Minnesota, and that's also my hood. That's where I grew up. So, can you? One of the other things that I found really powerful is you also helped a lot of these Black women-owned businesses get into the e-commerce space with the B Marketplace and a physical marketplace. Talk to me about the B Marketplace. Yeah, so, you know, the impact of COVID, right? We know it nearly decimated uh, 50% of Black businesses across the country um, in the United States. And uh, one thing we know was true is that we were challenged in the technology world. We didn't have a lot of infrastructure. Um, You know, we do a lot of person-to-person business culturally, et cetera. So we used our platform to build an online uh, e-commerce space for Black women entrepreneurs. And uh, so it, it grew out of that. And uh, we lifted up about between 30, 35 black women annually 
particularly around the holidays where, you know, we would revamp their uh, websites, their uh, social media, you know, their, just their brand as much as possible. Uh, teach them about communications and marketing and uh, give them a grant to purchase inventory, you know, and to get them prepared. And then we do a marketing campaign for 30, 45 days where we promote their businesses. And we did that in 2020 and 2021. We took a little bit of a break last year so we can revamp our own selves. But we've driven uh, with both years over $100,000 into uh, those businesses just through that marketing. Fantastic. Mary, to close this out, Sunrise has made a tremendous commitment to you know, communities that don't necessarily represent historically who Sunrise had served to be more representative of the communities in which Sunrise participates. How has that played out culturally as David has made that push for the bank and as you think of the culture of Sunrise and your engagement with the community? You know, honestly, this isn't something new for Sunrise. I have been in this banking space in Minnesota, and there are a lot of banks in Minnesota, for 17 years. And I've always known that Sunrise is a social enterprise as well as a bank. So that's been part of, I think, of the fabric of our mission and our approach for years and years. Since I came here five years ago, it's really struck me how much it's not just a brand. This is not just uh, an image that the bank is trying to maintain. It's a mission that's carried out every single day and what all of us do on a day-to-day -day basis, regardless of our role, right? So my job as a lender is really to work with businesses, building owners, and help them grow, expand, start, carry out that next phase of their dream. Um, but I see that that reality at every level of the bank in terms of how we interact with our clients, how we volunteer in the community, the organizations we support, the ways that we're you know, doing the video, for example, that we just did for BWWA, um, there is a very tangible, meaningful commitment to equity, to um, financial wellness, to empowering that financial wellness for the communities where we are located, which is primarily the heart of St. Paul, Minneapolis, our urban communities, but we serve obviously a full Twin Cities market. So, um, I mean, I've, I'm so grateful, honestly, to work for an organization that puts its money where its mouth is literally every day. Yeah. And, and there are challenges, right? You know, with yes. that, and it's, it's, you know, Sunrise has a mixed, you know, reputation in the community. So I think the relationship piece, I just want to go back yes. to that, is really important, right? Because everybody's going to have different experiences, um, you know, with different folks who they work with in the bank. And I think, you know, in this era, everybody's challenged to, you know, especially as it relates to uh, African-American, historically black folks, you know, um, everyone's still challenged to really figure out real criteria uh, that will meet us where yeah. we are. Right. And that really yep. still hasn't happened. You know, um, I think there are some exceptions, but not rules. Right. Like I'm an exception to some ways, but I'm not the rule. And even in this next phase of you know, redevelopment, right? I'm I'm still challenged, right? I'm not it's not a done deal that this will work with Sunrise, right? It's a done deal that we're gonna try, you know, but um yep. it's it's still a it's still a it's still an uphill battle because I'm coming from a place where I don't have all the assets and everything that's really required to even do this. Um and so building that is this is the challenge and where and how Sunrise and any other bank can meet us where we are understanding the historical um, context of where we're coming from, I think, uh, has yet to re re uh, be answered, um, to be honest with you. And yep. so it, with lines of credit, with, you know, traditional lending, let alone commercial, um, you know, in, in, you know, residential real estate. So um, we're not solving that problem yet uh, as, a, as a whole, but we are making stride in figuring out how to, you know, get more of us into that space. I also think there's a lot of room for banks and the banking system, which frankly includes regulatory agencies that have a lot of oversight over what we can do, to do a lot more listening than we do. We tend to just do a lot of the talking and the establishing the policies or establishing the credit parameters or the guidelines. And there's not a whole lot of listening or thinking about how we can be um, innovative or think outside that box to re meet real needs of our entire community. Um, I, I think that needs to change much more systemically than it has. I'm grateful to work for an organization that 
at minimum is committed to being a part of that process of change. Not that it's figured out all the answers today, but it's committed to being part of that change that needs to happen kind of in our American society, particularly around banking. So I totally hear what you're saying and see that. And I think relationship does make a huge, huge difference in uh, anybody's experience with the banking system, but especially true when you're part of an underserved community. Kenya, if listeners want to learn more or get engaged with the Black Women's Wealth Alliance, where can they go and what can they do to help support your mission? Yeah, um, definitely visit our website. The The revamped version is coming next week. Yay! Um, as we're rebranding. But, you know, reach out to me. Uh, connect on LinkedIn. Um, let's talk. I think, you know, we can always use, of course, everybody needs donations, you know, to support our work, no doubt, uh, so that we can continue uh, doing, you know, uh, the granting and things we do. But I think volunteerism, uh, you know, connections, you know, relationships, we need more insight always. There's technology needs. There's a variety of things, but let's connect. Uh, send me a message um, through the website, you know, send me a message on LinkedIn, um, check out our social media. That will be probably the strongest ways to connect. But um I don't know how everybody can help. You tell me how you can help. I'll be listening. Well, I would add, we'll have the URL in the show notes, but also people should visit the B Marketplace when it opens up again. Put your money where your mouth is, as Mary said. Thank you. Thank you both for joining and having such a candid conversation. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Kenya. Thanks, Jason and Mary. The financial world is being shaken to its core. Macroeconomic pressures are rising, disruptors are redefining traditional business models, and innovative technologies and experiences are evolving faster than ever. How can you find your feet on the ground that's constantly shifting? You have to read the Global Innovation Report from our partners at FIS. From embedded finance and ESG to crypto, decentralized finance and the metaverse, FIS pinpoints the trends you need to watch and explains how innovation can give you an advantage in both good times and bad. Discover how the latest innovations could affect your business. Explore the research today by visiting www.fisglobal.com slash global innovation report. FIS, advancing the way the world pays, banks and invests. So this is actually a continuation of a conversation that started in my kitchen. And frankly, I wish we were back in the kitchen because it was when it was warm and uh, it was over some cocktails. And you was fortunate to have Damon and Brian were engaged in this conversation. One of the things that really stuck with me was when Damon had made the comment, we were talking about, you know, why is banking hard to make more inclusive? And one of the comments was around this, you know, what are the subtle signals that, you know, tell people, you know, this isn't the place for you. And he had made the comment that if you look at a lot of underserved communities, particularly black communities, where there's an armed guard at the front door, sends a very clear signal that says, this place is not for you or you're not welcome. There's, you know, there's some barrier to your participation here. And so we'd love to start the conversation there of, you know, as a career banker and a black man, you know, Damon, how have you thought about this? Where are there unintended outcomes, unintended barriers that are built up? They probably were put in, you know, for a good reason or thought to be a good reason, but where are these barriers you know, that you can see and say, I don't think that's driving the result you thought it was going to. You know, I those unintended barriers could be just that example that you um, presented in regards to the armed guards. You know, I remember prior to the murder of George Floyd, you could go to a branch and you really wouldn't see a lot of guards. Typically, you would see a guard if any event, something had took place at the location. And then there's this whole perception of the guard's presence makes things seem safe. And I think as you go down that path, you can also, you must also look at, well, how does a guard's presence affect everyone? And so, you know, I remember in in your kitchen, we talked about 
you know, you have to be careful because that God's presence could also uh, symbolize or give the impression to the the folks in the communities of color and the urban communities that we're here to protect an asset and 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 you're not it, right? Um, I remember there was a joke that some of my colleagues had that looked like me about ten years ago, and this is whole perception that. Communities of color, especially black communities, are policed in general. It's the whole notion of protecting them and serving us. And so because you have um, systemic racism, because you have oppression and some of these things, there is a lived experience that people like myself or other communities of color um, go through. And I think as you make the decision, even with the best intent of let's protect or let's leave the um, impression or perception of safety, you also have to be close enough and, and not be tone deaf into how that could, excuse me, how that can, could affect the community of the people that, that live in the community or even the, the employees that look like the, the community that you're serving, if that answers your question. Yeah, well, it, it- I think it was John Maxfield told me this. We were having a conversation about branch architecture. And the the reason you see so much of like the granite and, you know, like things that feel safe and secure, right? Like this is a place that is stable and will stand the test of time. But it also makes me think what you were saying, Damon, is like, is it also sending the impression as like, this is not a place like that you're used to or comfortable and inviting to? Well, and, 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 you know, in all honesty, Jason, I don't think it solely rests on the surface of a guard or being there present. I think you have to peel back the onion and go deep, take a deeper dive, excuse me, because, you know, there's trauma and unresolved emotions and history of, you know, as a result of communities that have been oppressed or marginalized or just facing um, systemic inequalities that plague your perception. So even if, you you didn't have a guard, okay? Yep. You're still going to have a disconnect with black and communities of color when it comes to how much do we do they do we trust banks, right? Just because I think as you look at history, and then as you again continue to to take a deeper dive with some of this stuff, you see that in 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 some cases, you know, banks haven't been as inclusive, and there's a a certain trust gap that needs to be addressed and wedged. And so it's deeper than just the whole notion of having a guard there symbolizing that this is an asset that we have to protect or you are not welcome here or you're not wanted here. I think when you factor in some of the the things that have happened over generations uh, to communities of color as it pertains to the banking system, I think there's a little apprehensiveness there anyways. And then when you think about um, unfortunately, for whatever reason, you know, communities of color and blacks, you know, di- don't really have that playbook of what makes you a steward of banking. How can banking really um, be effective and, and be beneficial to helping me build well? And so as a result of that, you just have so many things that uh, that that affect that perception, if you will. So I don't think I mean, you have to call that out. But I think you also have to go deeper and look at the trauma and all the other experiences or not that communities of color and black communities in particular have experienced or not experienced in the banking system. Yeah, I want to circle back to that level deeper, but I want to stay on the front door for a second because I think we're losing a lot of people at the front door here before we get into the deeper traumas and trust. And Brian, I know this predates your coming to Sunrise Banks, but I love the story from your CEO, David Riling, who hosts The Next Gen Banker, but when he returned from, you know, he'd been working in Southern California for a bank, came back to Minnesota to take the CEO of Sunrise Banks, and the realization that the community that Sunrise served was vastly different than the community from when he left. And would love for you to talk a little bit about that evolution in terms of what Sunrise literally looks like now when you walk into a branch and when you communicate with people there. Yeah, David is uh, a great leader and a great listener. And I think when he kind of took on the leadership role in the bank, he looked at the community and he looked at 
the current employees and he looked at everything and he just tried to look at the problems. And, and so he thought, okay, well, here's the problems we have in this community. Here are the things that they're telling me we have to try and solve. And so what can we do to solve those problems? Um, and part of that is understanding who the market is, understanding what kind of issues they face, and then understanding who can help solve those problems. So, you know, I think for Sunrise, at least, there is a mindset of showing up every day with the mindset of helping people. And that comes from the top with David. And in, that can show up in the employee base um, and, and hiring people from the surrounding com community and trying to do our best to do listening and, and understand what those issues are and then try to solve those problems with whatever we can. And for those that we, that we can't, try to partner with others that can help um, you know, in those communities. And so, Damon, I think now that we get back to, so um, when we had moved back to the Twin Cities, knowing this story from David, I actually intentionally went to uh, get the title for our car, uh, one of your branches, that is not necessarily a very white-centric neighborhood. And I was astounded at the level of diversity that was in this branch, right? Like I was one of the only non-people of color in the branch. And frankly, it was refreshing. But it was also, there's this next level that it isn't just people who like look like the people they were serving. The way the conversations took place were also very different. Like the language, and I'm not talking like native tongues, but you know, the, the way they converse since they were from the neighborhood also seemed much more natural which got me thinking, it's like, that's another barrier because bankers tend to talk like bankers, which is not how normal humans talk. So Damon, I'd love to go to that next level of the onion. When you look at, when we want to create more inclusivity, you know, we need to open the front door wider the, than we have, that people feel welcome into it. But then how do we drive it further that they actually get the services they need? I think you you started down the right path and you called it out. You know, as they go and pull on that door, the folks that are serving the community need to be a reflection of the community. And when we say that, we all we we tend to go right to, you know, what's the color of their skin. But I would even challenge us to look at, you know, is it a reflection of just diversity in general? You know, do, is there an opportunity to to up and hot uplift and highlight gay, lesbian, transgender into banking? Is there opportunity to um, create a path for individuals with disabilities. So I think as a whole, when you start to go down that path, you really start to connect or create the opportunity to connect with, with everyday, everyday people. And what I've learned in banking, Jason, is that customers, when they show up, especially in communities of color, they they're, tend to have a certain comfort level when they feel like the person behind the counter or behind the desk can relate to them. So it goes beyond even looking like that person, but to your point, how we interact, how we converse, is it a way where I can validate you as a person, but also take myself off what I would describe as a banker pedestal and let you know that I'm, I'm here to help you because it's sincere. You know, I'll give I, I give an example. I always tell, you know, there's individuals that work inside banks that they tell their story all the time of how they had poor credit, how they fell victim to overdraft fees and all these other things. And so that's their why. That's their purpose. In addition to growing the business and serving the company, or excuse me, serving the customer and making sure the company is successful. But how do I show that I'm relatable? How do I show that I've been there, that I understand? And that's true connection there. And I think it 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 you what you witness is a certain agree, degree of appreciation. Because typically, to your point, when 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 you pull on that door, if it don't look like you or if it looks like your traditional banker, that's intimidating. Right. And so I think the more you can have a diverse staff that reflects the communities that you live in, but more the more that those people can be personable and connect to people on their levels, meet them where they're at. Shouldn't be a general approach in how you go about servicing people. Now, there's there's playbooks and training about the enhancing the experience of the customer. And that's important, but I think there's opportunity to connect with Jason, to connect with Brian, to connect with Damon. And those, that staff that tends to do that have greater success and winning the trust and building relationships of the folks that come pull on those doors. Well, and I, it, the part that really resonates there is 
it's not just a color of the skin issue in terms of being relatable that, you know, you can change, you know, the color scheme, but it doesn't change speaking bankeries and accessibility and empathy that needs to go into the situation. In the first half, actually, uh, we had Kenya and was just describing, you know, her experience in terms of finding accessibility and the ability to ask questions, which, you know, question asking and being accessible, that's a big cultural change, right? Like we can be intimidating as bankers because we think about things as numbers and FinTech, frankly, can be even more challenging, even though you don't have the person across the table, you know, like who feels like they're judging you. You also can be intimidated by the combination of technology and numbers, which is almost worse. So how do we begin to change, you know, culturally? And uh, Brian, would love to start with you because Sunrise has been on this, um, you know, cultural change. And then Damon, let's come to you because of, you know, you've come from US Bank and Wells Fargo and now with First Independence Bank. We'd love to talk about how do we build cultures of inclusivity? Yeah, I think Damon said it really well. You know, it's you pull on that door, you walk in and do the people there understand the issues that you have? And they may have been through it themselves. And now they're working at a bank and they can go, hey, I get it. You don't, you want to be able to buy a house someday. How do you get there? You want to be able to save for college for your child. How do you do that? Um, and understanding what those problems are and how to solve them. And then the other part, part of that is not just inside the bank, but outside the bank. You know, are the employees of the bank going out and volunteering on committees and boards and working with nonprofits that then also help? those individuals. So they're providing guidance and expertise on how to give small businesses technical assistance. So they're going to the home ownership center and providing classes on home buying and that kind of thing. That's another big role that a lot of community banks play and, and especially Sunrise and First Independence to, to be active and proactive out in the community and not just sitting back and waiting for the door to open or waiting for the phone to ring. And I would add to that just because to the point of what we were just talking about, because of all these other barriers or perceptions, people may not want to come and pull on the door. And so I think as you as you insert yourself in the community, it also allows you to identify and meet people where they're at. And so, you know, for example, if I'm out in the community um, serving, then that, that earns me the right to talk about the bank, but I can expose people to the bank. Right. That simple conversation that took place in your kitchen sparked this conversation today. So I think uh, to Brian's point, um, it's important for banks or employees of banks to be vested and be involved in the community, because that's also how you connect, lean in, listen and learn to even think about products and services that would be beneficial to those people that you want to come pull in the door. The other part of it is the more you spend time out in the community, it allows you to build patience, grace, and, and it should motivate you to understand that this is you can't take a cookie cutter approach. You know, it's not as simple as just getting people access to capital or getting people loans. We got to build behaviors that make people um, worthy enough to earn the right to take advantage of, of banking to their benefit. And I use those words very specifically because, you know, as, as I think about my banking career, one of the things that I have realized is that banking can be beneficial to people that look like me, but it's about meeting people where they're at, getting them access to the resources, and then helping them form the behaviors so they can see the benefit. And that's not going to be from your everyday person coming and pull on the door. That's going to be you partner with the community, identifying those 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 opportunities and capitalizing on it. Yeah, and and looking for what are your goals? What do you what are you trying to accomplish? And and then having those conversations. And maybe you're out there and you hear the same pain point over and over again. A good example might be, well, I don't have a social security number. I'm an immigrant and I'd like to buy a house. I, I have an ITIN number. What can I do? Well, there are options for that, uh, you know, so that's an example, a Sunrise specific example, but still that's the kind of thing that, okay, I've heard the same thing five times. What can we do? What can we put in place? Because it's not about credit risk at that point. It's not about risk at all. It's about getting people access to a system that they haven't historically had access to. Yeah. So today there's, you know, less than 50 black owned banks in the country. 
And Damon, you're now leading the first Black-owned branch in the Twin Cities, which is also a culmination of a lot of banks coming together, recognizing the importance of this. Um, folks like Bremer Bank, Sunrise Bank, the folks at U.S. Bank, right? Like Wells Fargo, you know, you're where you started uh, right just before this, Damon. Can you tell a little bit about the mission of First Independence and you know, how important, like you came up through some of the biggest and, you know, most well-known banks. And now you're like leading the charge for all intents and purposes, a startup, right? Um, would love to hear about that vision that, you know, took your storied career and said, you know, I'm doubling down on this. Stuart, man, you know, one, to your point, after working for two large firms, the whole notion that these banks got together in one room and parked their logos at the door was unheard of to me, right? And so that was the thing that was most intriguing is that after the murder of George Floyd, all corporations, especially banks, had certain agendas that they would wanted to be very intentional with in regards to serving communities of color, addressing the wealth gap, really targeting some of those root causes of why George Floyd would allegedly go and negotiate a, uh, try to negotiate a, a fraudulent $20 bill. And then I think the biggest aha is that we here in Minnesota, we own the ugly truth of, 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 of having the worst home ownership discrepancy in the nation when you compare black households to white households. So I think when you, as, as banks and those ones you stated looked at that, they said, well, what can we get accomplished together? And how do we do this faster? And then if you pool resources and, 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 and construct this ecosystem, it allows us to be on the same page. And so that's what, what happened. Those banks got together and said, well, you know what? To your point, we can't be the experts in this. We need some people that have been tied to the community. We need some people, uh, institution that's a that's that's more of a non-traditional institution like an MDI, right? And that doesn't mean that it's not a bank, but some of its specific initiatives is to serve com uh, communities of color, in particular Black folks. So it was the perfect timing. And I was just fortunate enough to work for two of the, the banks that was involved in it. And so I knew their culture of what they were trying to get accomplished. And it was sincere. You know, for this to happen, I knew this wasn't the flavor of the day. Like this was something that the banks or that this team, if you will, was committed to to produce short term and long term results. And then you think about First Independence Bank. The 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 way the bank was started 52 years ago as a result of the 1967 riots in Detroit. And then three years later, First Independence was formed. Well, if you know anything about the, the 67 riots, that was all based on police brutality. That's what sparked the social unrest. Well, sound familiar? And then when you, when you again, go deep and look at the root causes of these things, it's the same systemic inequalities and marginalizations and, and unbanked um, things that unfortunately we still face 52 years uh, later. So just knowing the bank's story and how it was just uh, how it came to be, and it was so parallel to what we experience here, it just felt right. The other part of it was, I, I strongly believe that the best way to put people on the path for generational wealth or to earn wealth is to own, is to own a home. We know that. We all reap the benefits of that. And so when you have those certain agenda items as your North Star, it just aligns with my why. The other part was understanding that these communities that we're talking about that are underserved, more than half of the, the, the issue is because they don't have the knowledge. They don't have the training. Um, if you allow me to use my sports analogy, you have people in the game that don't know the playbooks. And then you have people that don't want to get in the game because they're afraid because they don't know the plays. And then you have people that was in the game without the play that they failed, and now they, they're opting out. So when you factor in all that, it was an opportunity to, to, to combine resources to say, again, how do we help more people faster? And then how do we ensure that we can work together and rethink this, create some systemic change along the way to try to bring um, more in inclusiveness into the banking sector? And this moves beyond, in my opinion, um, just a moral thing to do. This is just good business sense. Our economy here in Minneapolis or Minnesota, and I, I would argue our economy across the globe benefits from people that are influencers, people that have access 
working together, locking arms, rethinking it, saying, how do we become more inclusive and bring in uh, resources and access to communities that have been cut out? And then acknowledging the ugly truths. There was a lot of ugly truths that the banks had to acknowledge in regards to systemic racism and, and what, it, what does it look like to be anti-racism? Well, I, anti-race, excuse me. Well, I think because of the energy of this Minnesota culture responding how we did after the murder of George Floyd, everyday human beings modeled that. It wasn't about who you came from or where you came from or who you look like. It was about serving people. People rolled up their sleeves and said, we want to make this better for people. So I think on accepting that charge created this ecosystem. And what better way to solidify that we're, we're really pushing towards equi equitable outcomes in this region and in banking, in the banking sector as a whole than to support our MDI. If you think about it, there's roughly about 4,500 or so financial institutions in the banking space. Well, there's what, 16, 17 MDIs. So again, this is simply about, Jason, uh, getting a larger table and bringing more chairs to the table. And then collectively, how do we have diverse thought, passion, and really put people first in effort of coming up with short-term, long-term solutions that would be beneficial for everyone, regardless of their race or their walk of life? Yeah. Well, you both are involved, you're institutionally, with an organization known as NEON here. And we're not going to talk specifics to the Northside Economic Opportunity Network here, but there's something important to be learned that you touched on there, Damon, which is... When I looked at the number of banks that are involved and the realization that the reason the banks are involved isn't because the bank's foundations and the communities investing in it from a community, but there's a lot of foundational banking work being done in terms of how do we create inclusivity and knowledge. You know, in one session, you know, recently, the building wealth through solid banking relationships, right? Like how a bank can actually help you get ahead and you know, to see, you know, uh, your CEO, Kenneth, was on it. And uh, Jean Crane, who actually is CEO of Bremer, she's the reason we have a relationship with First Independence Bank, right? Is Jean said, hey, they're opening a branch here. Alloy Labs needs to get involved. How do we actually support their expansion, right? And with US Bank, like just how important those fundamentals are if we're going to create the systemic change. And I'd love for both of you, you know, if you were going to give any piece of advice to a bank or a fintech out there around, you know, they want to build better products that promote inclusivity, what advice would you give them? Brian, why don't we start with you and Damon, then you bring us home. Okay. To me, the thing that comes to mind first is partnership. Because, you know, there's a couple of things, a couple of reasons why. One is in a highly regulated environment like a bank, you can't be as entrepreneurial as you always want to be. You can try and there are things you can do, but it is pretty tightly regulated. And so who can you partner with that can help solve the problems? And that may just be providing funding. It may be providing volunteer activities, or it may be literally partnering on loan transactions that otherwise wouldn't get done. And so I think partnership in those, uh, some of the nonprofits like Neon, like you said, uh, is extremely important. Damon has experienced that firsthand with some of the partners he's got with First Independence Bank. And that's great because it's served people faster. And I think people in their personal lives and professional lives want to be a part of doing something good. And part of that is where your money is. Part of that is what your organization is doing that you work for. And, uh, and I think so partnership is so key. To, to making a huge difference and making a bigger impact. Yeah, man, I love what Warren and his team are doing over there at Neon because it's it's really about education and preparation. You know, I'll use my Barry Gordy um, example. Barry Gordy didn't build Motown by just dealing with exclusively black people. You know, he had a spirit. He had the spirit to collaborate, to share ideas, and to really trade resources. But the other part was, you know, if you go back, there was a lot of artists that could have been number one hits, but they didn't get, they didn't get their chance right away because you had to be trained, you had to be developed. And then when you were ready, then we would give you your chance for your hit record. And so I think about what Neon is doing with the, their whole incubator and the resources they're surrounding young uh, entrepreneurs or just entrepreneurs in general. It's really about that. It's just as simple as this. If you are just now getting into uh, the entrepreneur space and you've never did, in, 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 in you know, examples, maybe you have a food truck 
This could be your first event. Well, you don't know what you don't know. So you don't, you haven't even thought about, do I have enough change? Mm. Right. To ensure that as I'm fielding orders, I don't run out of things. Right. And so neon is there to, to one support, give people that training, that knowledge. And they're, they're showing the power of collaboration going back to this ecosystem that you see with the banks. And to your point, Brian, that was spot on. It's all about how can we work together? You know, if we're really serious about addressing wealth gap and creating equitable outcomes, one bank can't do it. Even if we were, um, even if banking was flexible enough where you could be more of an entrepreneur spirit and have some specific focus, one institution can't wedge this gap by itself. And so there's there's two parts to this opportunity. One, we got to address it and we got to to implement foundation to really support growth. But then we also got to stop people um, from 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 slipping out the back door, right? As we are getting more people into home ownership or we're getting more entrepreneurs into fielding their dreams of, 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 of starting businesses, we also got to be as conscious and focus on the people that are in homes and the people that are that are um, currently owning their business because it's it you can't get caught up in the metrics. This is about doing what's right for people. And then the other part of it, I think, is just that keep your North Star um, or your, your center focus on doing what's right for people. You know, continue to leverage the community. Listen, learn. So as you come up with various resources, it'll be a direct reflection of the conversation and what you've learned. And then people will actually take advantage of it. You hear all the time, well, I, I do this workshop and people don't show up. My pushback has always been, well, how did you show the that it was advantageous or how did you really connect people to the benefits of this? And so I think what you're seeing is something special. And I'm excited about it because what we're creating here with the banks is going to be a blueprint that I would say that other states can use as a way to really show how to how to promote and carve out equitable outcomes. And then I also would, would state giving Brian's point about, you know, we still have as a bank regulations and rules that sometimes don't allow us to be as flexible. But as as banks come together and we now have an ask um, collectively, then guess what? We can probably have a greater outcome at creating some systemic change too. You know, one bank going to lawmakers or, or influencers and saying, hey, I need you to do this can be viewed as a selfish act. But where you got various corporations or institutions going together saying, we're putting people first, here is the reason or the consequences if we don't do that. I think that just puts a greater sense of urgency of your words not falling on deaf ears. And there's going to be some outcomes. There could be a situation where we may not see it all in our lifetime. Mm. But there's opportunity for us to start this thing, pave the way, and pass the baton to the next people that's coming behind us to, to, to get the work across the finish line. Well, I look forward to the next conversation to have both of you around my kitchen table with a beer to talk about this. And I know you guys continue the conversation outside of it and excited to see because it, the system has to work together to change the system if we're going to fix it, Damon, to your point. And excited to see those conversations happening. I guess we should call this Jason's hometown episode on you know, how do we fix you know inclusivity. But thank you both for taking the time. David, if folks want to reach out uh, to you, if they're find a way to support you, how can they reach out to First Independence Bank? Thank you. So one, they can log on to firstindependencebank.com. And actually from a consumer relationship, you can start your, your account right online. Or we would love to welcome people into our home office here on Lake Street. We just built a, be a beautiful new location inside the Hennepin County building. It, that address is 2217 East Lake Street, right inside the on the first floor of the Hennepin County Family Service Building. And then obviously we started our first location over on University 3430 uh, University Avenue Southeast, right across the street from the Channel 5 news station. In fact, it was an old Wells Fargo building. And I just would be remiss if I didn't throw in this plug. Next week, we're starting a uh, $1 million deposit campaign. We're partnering with the MBCRE, so the Minnesota Business Coalition for Racial Equity. And they're leaning in saying, how can we support the bank? And so they're going to help us. And they're running a local and national campaign over the next four months to stand up deposits and help us with member acquisition. And as important, 
help tell our story and, and connect people with the bank. So looking forward to that. And hopefully we can use that time to continue to drum up support for the bank to give us the reach to be an influencer in this space with Brian at Sunrise and all the other, what we refer to as the Fat Five Banks that started this conversation and was delighted to give us the opportunity to come here. And with me being here for the last 34 years, man, this is unheard of. And I can say, this is not the flavor of the day. We're not gonna turn the page on this. You will continue to see us as institutions work together. There's gonna be some things that our, our hands are gonna be tied but we're gonna to continue to look for ways to include and make banking more accessible and not necessarily make uh, things easy, but make it simple and, 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 and create the opportunity where everyone can have the opportunity, everyone can capitalize on the opportunity as we have when, when it comes to the banking sector. Now, if you want to hear more of Brian, I can give this plug because I don't think he'll give himself enough credit. Brian is also one of the co-hosts of the Next Gen Banker podcast that you can oh. find at provoke.fm. Really engaging conversations and something that everyone needs to know about Sunrise. It is one of the most socially responsible banks out there. It is built, and they, it isn't branding. It's they put their money where their mouth is. They are a certified B Corp part of the global association of banking on values. And I think you can see it in every action they take. And Brian hosts some brilliant episodes along with David Reiling and Becca Haft. They're continuing the conversation about what that next generation of bankers is going to mean and the importance of values and telling that conversation. What I miss, Brian. <laughs> you hit it all, Jason. Thank you for that. That was great. And uh, you can find us at sunrisebanks.com. That's like just like breaking banks, banks with an S, sunrisebanks.com. So thank you for that. I think you hit it all. And yeah, check out Next Gen Banker podcast. It's really fun to host and learn a lot about our guests and what they're all into. It's everything from fintech to climate action to government officials. And um, we're making some great connections and I think great strides with that. So thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Elizabeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carla Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media, or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.